This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dan Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. We can have a hootenanny if we want. We that can... sounds good. There you go. Sure, I take I take requests. What would you like? We got a... <laughs> I can share with you my favorite moment in, in, in pop record history. Let's hear it. Do it. Okay. That's one of my top five. But it's the move here. Hold on. Now, how do I get up? That was the moment uh, where he yeah. just goes, fuck it. He <laughs> just hits the open string. Yeah, That would explain the Pawn Kings cover. Um, <laughs> very, very. Uh, there it is. Heat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know. Oh, yes. That's right. That's right. Oh, very. You, somebody did some homework. Yeah. The uh, the official live kind of bootleg thing. That was awesome. <laughs> Maybe the best intro we've had for the show. We're using it. Hey, that's yeah. a classic. Thanks ah. for joining us. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Wait a minute. Let's all get our guitars. I want to play oh, the bass. Oh, that would be note. great. We could have, we could have a Zoom jam. Here we go. You don't want that from me. Trust me. So let me meet everybody here. Who have we got? We've got some. Um... Yeah, we got. Uh, so you got an old concert promoter in Indianapolis, which is me, Andy. You got uh, you got Dane Clark, who's been Mellencamp's drummer since '96. You hit things really well then. Yeah. Fantastic. And we got the legendary album cover extraordinaire. He loves when I say stuff like this. Uh, Hugh Syme, you know, joining us today. So, you know, just go to your record collection and you probably have 50 Hugh records. I have and I did and I know. So thank you, Hugh, for just what a great, great catalog of work you have. Oh, man, thank you. And thank have you. owned and have. And in fact, I have a signed by all three uh, Farewell to Kings. So that was a. Something I uh, will. Oh, uh, you be, do! Wow. Yeah, it was a very. For, I didn't. I didn't meet the guys. Well, I've I've met Getty once, but this is kind of funny. I was I, I toured for many years with Olivia Newton John. I I read that. That's a tough gig, man. Yeah, no I, kidding. I, I, I did. It, I, I was her MD and guitar player for fifteen years, and you know, um, yes, many stories about that. But we were playing in Minneapolis, and Rush was playing the same night. So I had the funny idea. Well, we should do their Xanadu. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. And so some, somebody in our crew knew somebody in their crew. So I didn't get to go to their show cause I was playing that night, but I was able to go to, uh, to at least a venue and I got, I got to hold Alex's old 335. They were having dinner. So we didn't want to bug them, but I did bring a, a record and they, they got it signed for me. I was, I was very proud of that. And very That's happy super that cool. They man. took care of it. Yeah. They just, you know, of course seemed like the loveliest guys and just meeting Getty briefly. Um, that was, that was confirmed. Yeah. Grounded people. Really. Yeah. And, uh, no, beautiful, but yeah. I, but what a part! Started. What a what a great what a great part of that that art your 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 covers are, Hugh. It's just thank you. 
Thank you, man. Really tremendous, starting with, you know, of course, I know you did Crest of Steel, but 2112, all the world's stage, Farewell of the Kings and Hemispheres, for me, was a very special, you know, time of my growth, and, and those records were just on constantly, and I learned how to play music. But yeah, back in the day, when we're just staring at that cover, the entire musical experience, it just was illustrated so so wonderfully, so thank you. I usually had the album covers open. Yeah, for different co- reasons? Collecting, <laughs> collecting some seeds. Oh, here we go, okay, here we go. I never, I was never, I, I never was a pot smoker, but I was in a band in those years. I was in a band with older guys, and they were, in, you know, partaking of of the of the seed there. Yeah, so I've, I've seen that scene many times. <laughs> I can smell the smells, but yeah. I still have most of my records. My kids kind of ransacked me pretty good. I pulled out the, the White Album and... There's still some seeds in that thing. <laughs> Remnant's dead. Yeah. Dad, what are Jeez. these? They go out and plant those, you know. And uh, I used to be a farmer. You guys don't know about my gardening skills, but I, yeah. speaking of dad and the white album, um, I, I probably have said this on this particular podcast before, but my father had a great sense of humor. My Christmas present one year was a, a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle of the white album. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, dad. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much. Ooh, I've got part of the one. The no- yeah, that's so boy. Well, thanks, Andy, for joining us today. Happy to be a part of this uh, this amazing group. Now, are, how long have you been promoting concerts in Indiana? Man, I've been working since uh, about twenty five years, over twenty five years. So I used. You're from Evansville, so I did. I grew up in Evansville. I started at Sunshine Promotions. You know the heritage. Okay, Sunshine, Larry Aiken, and all that. Yeah, dating back to all the Messer days, Robert Stadium days. You know all that stuff. You know before they all got torn down. Because I saw my first shows, I would have seen. Well, Kiss was my first show in 76 on the Destroyer tour, but early on was also Hemispheres. I saw Rush, and it was probably Max Webster opening. So Good. I'm glad you mentioned Max. I have a huge affinity for Kim and the band. I think I saw him a couple of different times, with probably with Rush both times. We're all based in Indiana, so we should say that. So I'm in Indianapolis. Dane's up the road in Anderson, and Hugh, believe it or not, he lives over by uh, Newcastle. Well, there you go. I, I know I know White Castle, not so much Newcastle. Right? <laughs> We've made him an honorary hillbilly. Four Hoosiers walk into a podcast. That's right. Now, the only the only reasonable and sad explanation of the origin of the, the term Hoosier refers to in the settlers' days, you know, knock on the door, Hoosier. Is that really what they call us? And it's funny you say that, because I just read about that not too long ago, and I had never heard that either, but I read that. That, and I was going to, my dad's like a, was an old history teacher and I was going to ask him about it and I forgot to ask him about it. So now I'm going to ask him. My daughters are all correcting this Canadian. I say, every time I say Hoosier, I, I say Hoosier, not remembering it's Hoosier. You got to slur it a little bit. It's also a furniture make for baking tables from what I understand. It was a famous baking table at one point. It's like you got to say Louisville when you're in Louisville, Louisville and... Nolans. Nolans, there you go. Absolutely. He's the local, the local dialect. But anyway, we're solving lots of problems here and asking certain questions and we expiring minds want to know. So on, <laughs> yeah. on the Hoosier <laughs> note, take us back to Evansville and, and how you got your start playing guitar. So I born in Scottsdale and moved to Evansville when I was five, but I had three older brothers. I was very fortunate that, uh, you know, born in 63, uh, we were all four years apart. So my oldest brother was 12 years older than I. So perfect record buying age, 12 years old in 1963. He bought all the Beatles, all the Dave Clark Five, all, you know, kinks, animals, all, all the British Invasion stuff. The two oldest brothers had a couple of acoustic guitars around the house, the uh, the old Silvertone Sears ba- basic model that seemingly many households had back in the 60s. I had one of those. Th- with the guitar in the case, the case was the amp, right? Oh, that one. You're talking about the electric. These, just, Yeah, yeah, the, with the little lipstick pickups in it. Now, these were just the acoustic, the acoustic version. In fact, I've still got, you know, the that you would see in the catalog. And as a kid, you're just drooling over these... Uh, these little instruments, but so it was always in the household. And those and my older brothers were big heroes of mine in that way. Always very musically influenced. But yeah, then got, just kind of got into guitar through them, but very self-taught till the age of about sixteen. But at the age of thirteen, I I got into my first band. My first gig was my own eighth grade graduation dance from Hebron High for Hebron Grade School, nineteen seventy six. It was a power trio, an older drummer, an older bass player that I'd met through one of my brothers, and we were doing instrumental versions of. We did 2112 and Temple Sisterinx and Stranglehold and Kiss and Bob Singer. It was just Foghat, Ario, and maybe the bass player sang a couple of tunes. But these poor kids that I went to school with were, you know, probably wanting Billy Don't Be a Hero by Bo Donaldson or something. <laughs> <laughs> and I was a nervous, I was a terrified. I was a really shy kid. So 
you know, standing in front of, for my first gig, standing in front of everybody I've known for the previous eight years of my life, you know. That's harder than strangers sometimes. Yeah, maybe. I was in Canada with Olivia. We were doing a, a tour across the country and I had, we had a day off. So I sometimes would book a guitar clinic in a, mu- in a music store. I would either for Ibanez guitars or Mesa Boogie that I, I endorsed. And uh, I, I don't remember the town, but you know, it's, you, you've got like 20 guitar fans, but then Olivia and the whole band decided to come to the gig. Friends are one thing, but when it's kind of family there are a some people i dearly love but you also know that they've got the best freaking ears that anybody's ever gonna have i remember being pretty nervous for that one but you blew it you should have said i want to welcome my boss to the show tonight <laughs> olivia newton john hello <laughs> she's gonna get up and sing a number with me yeah, yeah we'll get there to you a, go was a Yeah, we could do a hopelessly devoted or something. Yeah, anyway, so, but yeah, I still get nervous though. It doesn't matter um, who I'm playing for. You always want to do well, but that first gig, you know, certainly. I remember fiddling with my amp with my back turned to the crowd most of the gig. But the, the thing that I was so fortunate with was that um, that same drummer I ended up playing with for the next seven or eight years. And um, by nature of them being older, you know, guys, we got into bars pretty early. So by the 15 and 16, I'm playing three nights a week already. And, uh, you know, by that age, I'm getting, I'm getting pretty good. I'm, you know, the hot, the hot lead guitar player in the band. And, but by 16, I knew that this is, I could tell this is where my life was headed. I didn't have any interest in anything scholastic or anything that might actually earn a proper living. But, uh, but I thought, well, I, I saw these columns in Guitar Player Magazine with, you know, Larry Carlton or Tommy Tedesco and, and eventually Steve Luger being session guitar player. So I mean, ah, oh, that's, that seems like a, a cool thing I could do and make a living playing guitar. So I sought out a local teacher and just started taking lessons, you know, from a, a guy named Ron Pritchett, who taught me how to read the, you know, fundamental how to read and stuff, but he was a jazz player. He was turning me on to Barney Kessel and Joe Pass. So from an, er, from an early age, I started to hear a lot of different stuff, not just the rock and roll stuff that either my brothers played or that I was buying, you know. Because by the time I got, I got my first job when I was 13, you know, sweeping hair at a local barbershop, the Lawndale Barbershop. But that gave me income. And so, you know, my first paid check of, or, or I never got a check, it was just cash out of the register. My first 30 bucks, I know I went and bought, I went to Karma Records, which I don't know if there's any more Karma Records anymore, but there was- There a, is a few of them, yeah. Is there? Okay, so my, bro, my brother worked at Karma Records. He, he, he went on to, to, to have a record store called Ear Ecstasy that's pretty famous. Yeah, I've heard of that. Down in Louisville. They're, they're now defunct, unfortunately, but he's, uh, he continues on on- the, on the uh, WFPK radio station down there. He's spinning records. But he worked at the car. So I went and bought, um, with my first money of my very own, bought uh, Kiss Alive and the Raspberry's Greatest Hits. Raspberry's, great band. I mean, that's, I mean, just don't. Power pop, baby. Got a better riff. Yeah, Eric Carmen was a great writer, singer. They say they kind of had Beach Boy harmonies and they sounded like the Who and they sounded like Big the Big Star. Big Star's another one. Just freaking great. Memphis and now Badfinger, big star. Oh, that vibe. I'll play. So I'm going to see Joey Mullen this weekend. Um, there's there's a very interesting tour going on with the uh, Rundgren. It's Todd Rundgren, Christopher Cross, Joey Mullen, Jenny yes. Lane, yeah, uh, Jason thing. Chef, all doing. The, apparently, they're doing Rubber Soul and uh, and Revolver. Wow, man! Where are they? So I'm going to see them at the Majestic uh, Theater here this Sunday. Come on down. Where's that? Majestic's downtown Dallas. I'm in. I'm in. I'm in McKinney, Texas, as a northern suburb of of Dallas. But they're they're going to be obviously they're doing a proper tour. They should be coming to a theater near you, hopefully. But a big, huge Todd fan. But I've never seen. Oh yeah, me too. Any, of course, Joey must be the only surviving uh, Badfinger member. And Denny Lane, he's a Moody Wing. Right, right. <laughs> the Moody Wings. Yeah, he better go now, um, or something. Yeah, he was in that band for five minutes, right? In which, uh, in which Moody Blues? In in the Moody Blues, yeah. Because but he had the big hit early on, anyway. He sang "Go Now." That's that's a pretty good one. So he was a rocker, and then they turned into the prog. Uh, yeah, they tights had... that I've shat in, you know. Yeah, they... <laughs> is that the real words? There's a bathroom on the right. Should I wore my depends? No. <laughs> You've done some work on this one. This is. This is, uh, this is not being improvised. He's got, he's, he's got a... Hey, I might be able to get sued for that. <laughs> you better, <laughs> yes, this you better edit that out. That's, that could be the, the best thing that could happen to the podcast. Yeah, I know, yeah, right? Yeah. I was taking acid in that era, and I could have sworn I heard Nights in White Satin. Yeah. I, I think... I, that's what I heard. Yeah. Through the haze. <laughs> exactly. That band had so many... Then it was kind of like the later 70s. They had some, you know, some really big hits. Like you, you kind of consider that the later era, but it's the seventies now. So, 
Well, Justin had some wonderful music on his own, too. Some of his albums were lovely. Yeah, they had some cool stuff. Story in your eyes. Yeah. Question. Question was a cool one. Question was kind of their Tom, it was their pinball wizard, wasn't it? Oh, wow. I forgot about that one. Including the French horns. Yeah, it did have French horns. That just, what is it? It's one of my favorite intros. Oh, yeah, man. Overture from Tommy. Come on now. This part here. Anyway, there'll be a whole instrumental Who record coming up. <laughs> oh, sorry, man. I can do Keith Moon. Had it worked out at one point. guys ever hear the version of that of the overture by um, um it was it was an instrumental orchestral version it was actually the first 45 i bought the assembled multitude no. look up the assembled multitude it was it was an orchestral rock group from i want to say philadelphia this would have been 19 famous people or just just players no nobody you know but they had a, they had a they had a, a medium-sized hit with the overture from Tommy and I, I actually worked up a version of the overture with my band. We did, we did uh, overture into Pinball Wizard and into Baba O'Reilly. And so, but my version that I came up with for the overture actually was a combination of the Who and this assembled multitude. They they were on a, they were on Atlantic Records, but it's I love it. I love the way the drummer plays. There's a cool guitar player in there, and the orchestral vibe really works. Big old Glockenspiel on the you know. And some proper strings in there. It's uh, it's pretty magical. Though, I I've, I started hearing it when I was in like fourth grade. So it might mean something different to me than it might to you. The first time you hear, it, you might go, "This is the cheesiest thing I've ever heard." <laughs> but for I've heard it as long as I've heard the Who's version, which I had that on the forty-five too. So anyway, yeah, music is memory for sure. It is. It, well, and it's and it's great to be able to still get excited about it. Just like you are right now, and you're excited. I can't. I want to run over and start playing the drums, but I can't. Well, do this podcast, well, we'll killing to, me. We'll have to do that. We'll have to do that in 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 the in the person. Uh, I think we. But, I'd love to. But see, it's it's one of those things where yeah, we're. I always think about this when we're talking to like minded and and people that have been so influenced with music that, but not not everybody has it on the level that we have it. Be it from the instruments that we play, Dane, or the, you know, obviously on the artistic side with with Hugh. Um, you know, it's, it's something that, yeah, a lot of us, you know, we do this at some point it's, it's a living, but none of it would be happening if we didn't really love it. We, we still wouldn't be here putting up with what we've put up with at this point. <laughs> any, any road stories, Dane? Oh, you know? <laughs> oh, just a couple. <laughs> just a couple. There's a couple that could leave me homeless. I got, so, uh... I got oil slicked that one time when I was. Having said that I am I am uh, artistic in that sort of visual sense. You mentioned Max Webster earlier. I was in a band on the same label as Larry Gowan, Max Webster, Rush. That's how I got to know Rush was I was on the same label. It, it was always my love in the 70s to be in a band recording. We actually opened up for Rush with Max on a lot of occasions. Oh, my God. So what was what was your instrument? What was your band? Piano, keyboards, Mellotron, arp, you know. Ah, Mellotron is my... Oh, my yeah. I actually, I had the double manual mellotron that really? uh, Get- oh. getty procured from oscar peterson's son and getty <laughs> wasn't particular. yeah oscar wasn't that's insane yeah and i i got to use it for a couple of years on stage which was amazing oh um, fantastic i was with ian thomas a wonderful writer from canada the ian thomas band and uh that was a good schooling from the standpoint of playing live and uh, recording six albums you know as a rush fan andy i don't know if you know this or not but that's hugh at the beginning of 2112 the beginning of the album that's him oh shoot because i think you played on three or four rush albums yeah i played tears on the flip side with the mellotron and, and arp synthesizer what is that synth at the beginning of 2112 what, what were you using a, a simple arp odyssey we just wow. triple triple tracked it getty held down the pedal note and i just yeah man. going back to my early stuff i just oh that's amazing man well 
the artwork and the keyboards. I'm well, overwhelmed here. I will say I, I still get the bigger goosebumps from the music than I do art. I, I'm privileged to do both. And by the way, the neck of your guitar looks like that's seen some friendly action over the years. It was new. Well, new when I got it uh, back in it, this. This is my current. I have a signature guitar that that Ibanez makes. So this is a prototype, though. Uh, it was built on February fourteenth, nineteen ninety four. Which shouldn't shouldn't sound vintage, but if we start doing math, we're like, God damn, that's how many years ago? Yeah. <laughs> Twenty eight years, yeah. you know, shoot, uh, yeah. Anyway, see, yes, but it's been my main guitar. I, I have, I have a few others, but uh, this a plethora, to, I'm sure, this tends to be yeah. my whoobie, so to speak. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the new the new. Were you going to talk about the new uh, record that's coming out, Dave? I'd like to talk about it. I've got some stuff I've got to say about that so it's electric truth yes sir and there's the two songs that are available i was i thoroughly enjoyed listening to last night ewf what does that stand for oof no it's <laughs> it's it's no it's no it's 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 a thinly veiled reference to earth wind and fire of course and ah that's, and that's well, um yeah it's a definitely uh that first thought was really cool straight ahead funk groove thank you yeah. with some really tastefully understated guitar parts at the top really cool and then all of a sudden, about two minutes and a half in, <laughs> bam, there's that guitar solo that's just killer. Oh, thank you, man. And it's really nice. It's great. The organ oh, playing's nice. All the extra percussion is cool. And then your yeah. second solo, you take it a little further. The note selection is really well thought out. And oh, my first thought was 70s Jeff Beck. Mm. And I, I think I created a word, holds worthyinly worthy. <laughs> I'll take it. I, I definitely hear Beck in your playing, for sure. I was very impressed with it, man. It's just like, and it's just like you waited until it wasn't like you're letting, you know, oh, check me out. <laughs> you're going, hmm. I always love that Shining Star riff that Al McCabe played. I just, I love all the guitar stuff in the Earth, Wind, and Fire. So I, it, and I, I later found out that it, it, well, it's two parts. He's playing. Like a left hand boogie woogie thing, then overdubbed on top of it. It's real mutant funk. But so before I learned that, I, I he's got an instructional video that he did for Starlicks in the eighties, and it's on YouTube. So I just actually learned what I just showed you two weeks ago. But when I was always kind of just kind of imitating his playing, I would well. It's kind of doing my own thing, but with double stops. Yeah, that's cool. So the tune was just kind of based around that. Um, uh, but the players on it, that, that's that's Lamar Carter on drums, uh, Travis Carlton on bass, and a guy named Darren Johnson on, on keyboard. And the, the guy that, uh, my friend Josh Smith, who produced the record, that was kind of the idea behind the whole thing was like, I live in Texas, he lives in California, but he had just finished this his new studio behind his home. And he was just inviting me to come play. So, well, okay, I'll come play, but I, I love the sound of your records. I love the, your live band. Let's just, you and I will we'll write some songs, but you put the band together, you produce it. I just want to come out, be be the artist or whatever. Because when I'm usually doing my own records, I'm usually at least co-producing or producing. So it sounded like fun to me to just have another guitar player produce it and use his band, whoever he thought would, would serve what we're going to do better. Did you produce Cry For You and A Night To Remember those, that era? Yeah, that's that's all that. Yeah, my my usual kind of that was my early era. I would call it uh, instrumental stuff. Really good production, man. I was listening. Oh, to thank it. you, man. Yeah, that's that that would have been with my engineer Rob Wexler that I worked with for for gosh since nineteen eighty. Why do I know that name? Rob Wexler, he's uh, again been in here at Dallas with me since the eighties. We started working in nineteen eighty eight. Um, amazing engineer, but also an incredible electric violinist. I love the fretless and just the drum sound in in Christ. Yeah, thank you. Oh, the fretless bay that Mike played a wonderful. It's just an electric acoustic washburn, but he would just get the most amazing sounds out of, you know. I remember him standing next to the amp to get it to sustain and feedback, you know, really crafty with it. I'm glad you like that. That's That's been, that's my only regret with the, with the studio version of Cry For You. There's, a, there's a, a live version that I did with Simon Phillips from Japan years ago that, that's the one that most of the people that know my song know it from that video. But the original studio recording is the production is so nice and the sound is so great, but my 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 guitar track is literally a scratch track that was meant to be um replaced and it, but it was recorded with this little digital processor called the zoom pedal you know, yeah like yeah this little box like like the next level rock man of the day and it's not a great guitar sound but it was done just such a spirit of the moment thing like well the thing with ewf getting back to the, the electric truth thing that's a live take 
with the band. That's nothing was replaced. They just added some percussion to it, maybe a bit of extra keyboard. But the beauty of that, some of the stuff on the record is the fact that we were able to go into the room and just let it happen. And you can hear the band really vibing with each other. Um, because somebody, so there's been records I've done over the past few years where, you know, we're in different parts of the world and everybody's doing their tracks at home. And that can, that can be a nice way to do it, especially considering nobody went anywhere for the last couple of years. But man, when you can be in the room with people and have that interaction, and the, 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 uh, when, when the players are really listening to each other, it's not just, I'm going to get my part, okay, you fix yours later. It was like, hey, let's, let's play, you know? And it's a really good song. I got to share my Earth, Wind, and Fire story with you guys real quick. This was many years ago, the beginning of the, the season at Deer Creek Music Center up here in Noblesville. Earth, Wind & Fire was in town with Chicago. I had them doing some local TV, like the TV station wanted to come out, talk to Earth, Wind & Fire about the show that night, and then they want to interview me about all the shows coming up in the next few weeks at Deer Creek, right? So I was the PR guy. So this was back in the days when TV would come out and do the interview, and there was that little TV like off to the side, you know, that you would see. Yeah, they interviewed Philip Bailey and Maurice and Verdine White. So the guy, the weather guy interviews them, about the show tonight, they move out of the way, and they're standing there while he's talking to me, and I can hear him in the background laughing. And I'm like, what are they laughing about? You know, so I get through the interview, they cut back to the studio and then they start really laughing and they're pointing and looking at me. And I'm like, what's so funny? And they said, man, it said Andy Wilson. And, and below your name, it said of earth, wind and fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were in the band for a day. I know, that's what I said. There you go. Well, hey, man. Yeah. And Verdine goes, man, we probably sold a thousand tickets because they're like, who's the skinny white guy in earth, wind and fire? <laughs> According to CBS in Indianapolis for a little bit, I was in Earth, Wind & Fire. So there you go. You were in the band. Yeah. Said so on TV, it's got to be true. What did you play? Yeah, exactly. What was, you, what was your main instrument? I didn't instrument? play anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He just danced. He danced. None of us have ever been in Earth, Wind & Fire. Look at you. <laughs> no, <laughs> not right. even for that moment. Not, not even for that moment. He kind of was <laughs> nagging at me when you were talking about EWF. I, said, I think I did a cover for them. Oh, yeah, and I did. swear to God, I, I did. Yeah, I did. In the Name of Love was a cover oh, yeah. I did for them. Holy cow. So you were in their band for a short period of time, too. Now I'm the only one of us who yeah. wasn't. Yeah. And yeah. I've done I've done kind of an homage. And so now, Dane, it's up so to now you. I'm the what only... you got? Gosh, man, I don't know. I got to work on that. You can jump into the earth. You can jump into the wind. Or you can jump into the fire. Which one? Which one would you be? I'll hang with the wind, I think. Okay. <laughs> so it's, it's not too severe. Ride like, the, uh, break like the wind. By That's going to say, we, we, didn't, we didn't say break That's wind. A right. mighty wind. I've got, I feel one coming. I feel one coming. Yeah. Mighty wind is my favorite of that whole series of movies. And I'm saying, I mean, I love Spinal Tap. Okay, maybe I can't put it above Spinal Tap, but Mighty Wind, mm. if you haven't mighty seen it, good. it's the folk music, you know, Spinal Tap. But, but boy, it's so good. Waiting it's, for Guffman is, is my... That's a good one, too. It's great. Absolutely. Yeah. Nothing. Midnight, if, if not only for just the, the midnight at the Oasis. Yes, man. <laughs> Pen, <laughs> penny, penny for your thoughts. It's oh just my God, that so song. Good. So good. Nothing ever happens on Mars. Boring, boring. People are going to go, what the hell are they talking about? Yeah. Oh, this is great. <laughs> well, the other song that's available for uh, all of our listeners to hear is uh, from Electric Truth is When Words Fail. A beautiful 12-8 tune, man. Really nice melody that you play at the top. And I just like the way it gains momentum. And again, your rhythm accuracy is, is, is amazing. Coming from a drummer, I appreciate that very much. <laughs> Pro tools that around or have to mess around with that. No, no. It's really well done, man. Harmonically, it's beautiful, and rhythmically, it's beautiful. So the execution, and I think it's great ears more than anything else, probably. Like you're talking, it sounds like you guys are, you know, because it goes into that, your drummer goes into one, two, three, four, five, six at the end, just at the end. That's great. I love stuff. That had to have been off the cuff. Had to well, that one actually, no? I, that was a request of mine. I wanted it to be a bit like uh, End of Axis, Bold as Love. I can hear that. So we went in kind of two of a, kind of a six, eight, like a, but more of a swing. That swung a bit more at that part. I was hearing Mitch Mitchell and in that whole vibe, you know. Whatever that, you know, all the delay. Thank you, brother. Yeah, well, I mean, in the time thing, I mean, that's, yeah, I've, I've led her as, as well as playing guitar. I've led a, a very rhythmic life. It's um, always drumsticks with records when I was a kid. I had a brother that played drums as well. So I, I would take his broken drumsticks and rip up my bedspread, much to my mother's chagrin. But it's just something that has always come natural to me. But I've, I've also realized as far as guitar players go, the guys that I tended to gravitate towards, I could I could later see that they had such good time 
they could really place a note at just the right moment. They had such control over where that note was going to go. So it would make, it would make the phrase feel a certain way, whether they wanted to push it or lay it back or like dead center of the beat, you know, like Lugather or Carlton, you know, and, and Guy Matheny, guys like that, that had such great time and they could play perfectly in time. But w- with that, they could also play with it to where that's going to tug on the heartstrings a certain way. If you really can, you know, have that control and that, that flow with it. So if you're picking up on some of that, I'm, I'm happy to, but those are my, those are my influences, you know. When I look at your, your discography, I actually made a note to myself that uh, that was then, this is now has a kind of an axis boulders love vibe to it. Yeah. Well, so Hendrix is certainly, you know, he's there for all of us at all times. I just modern rock guitar or even, even vintage rock guitar wouldn't have been what it is without what he took and what he molded together. It's like, you can, you can look at most of our heroes and go, well, yeah, well, he was listening to this guy and this guy and this guy. Like Stevie Ray would have taken, taken Jimmy, but then all, you know, Albert and, and Freddie and Albert King. It just, so with, with, with Jimmy, you've, you've got, you know, you've got the, oh God, who am, who am I thinking of? I'm going to blank on some of the great guys that came, but obviously some great, great American blues um, and some great rhythm guitar playing. But then what he was able to do once the fuzz box came along, you know, it's just incredible and how he got the guitar to speak a certain way and just kind of created this vocabulary that we take for granted now, but he kind of really brought it together. Um, That's a good point. Yeah. You know, if you look at, you know, we're talking about Jeff Beck and I always say that Jeff Beck could have stopped after shapes of things, which was 65, mind you, it's recorded at chess studios and he's got that Telecaster already got the fuzz and the feedback happening. And that's just one of the greatest solos of all time for me and I think a lot of people. Um, so pre-Jimmy, you know, he was already kind of headed that direction. But Jimmy, you know, certainly took it, you know, to the next level. It's famously with, uh, whenever Jimmy first got to London and, and Clapton and, and, and Beck are going and Townsend, somebody comes out and like maybe Clapton's coming in as Townsend's coming out and he's like, we're fucked, man. <laughs> you know, yeah, guy. he goes, I've given, like, I think Townsend said, oh, yeah, I'll try the high watt with the, this, you know, try this. And he goes, I gave him an atom bomb to use on me. Oh, yeah, you yeah. Know? Or that, something like that. Right, exactly. Well, he's certainly a game changer. So, yeah, we're just all keep uh, being inspired by that. But that's, he's a guy, too, that, you know, I, I love the way he speaks as much as his music. You know, he was a guy that just the way he lived and articulated and, 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 and him coming to London when he did in the middle of the, you know, the Carnaby Street fashion, you know, that's, that's where he really flourished. He wouldn't have, wouldn't have been the same Jimmy if he stayed at the Cafe Wall. It would have been cool, right? But Chas Chandler getting him over to London and the fashion and him just embracing the whole thing. Timing was everything there, Time, too. Very yeah. magical time, absolutely. But, uh, and, then, and what he did in that short, what, three, four years, and we're still getting unreleased stuff. It's like... He was just always. Yeah. I think that well is still pretty deep. I mean, that's yeah, all he did I mean, was just, play. Just, just so incredible. So, there's a guy that I uh, we all need to search out, and I can't remember his name, but I'm good friends with Jerry Miller, who's a guitar player in Moby Grape back in the '60s, and who grew up. He used to eat dinner over at Jimmy's house. So him and Larry Coriel. So Jerry Miller, Jimi Hendrix, and Larry Coriel were from that Tacoma. Uh, Seattle oh, area. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't realize that Larry was from up there too. Okay. They all grew up together and they're all about the same age. And they used to go see this guitar player and Jerry Miller told me, and I need to ask him again who it was. And that's where they all learned a bunch of stuff. So we should all dig into that little morsel. Tell Andy about Moby Grape. Oh yeah. So I, I've produced a record. It's actually, it's about 10, 12 years old now for Moby Grape. I don't know if you were into that band. Their first record's kind of considered like a, a, five-star record i'm definitely familiar with some of it not but not not on the deeper well so i'll need to check that out how many original members are, are still with us or? well everybody except skip spence well they all sang lead they all wrote songs and they all sang lead and three guitar players jerry was the lead guy then they had peter lewis who was the finger picking guy and then they had skip spence who was like a choppy they invented the three guitar corral thing Pretty cool, man. If you go back and just listen to their first record, it'll change your life if you've never heard it. No, definitely. I'm always, I know there's lots of good stuff waiting for me. Yeah, I dig that. You'll you'll dig it. So I just going to say, between Olivia Newton-John and Paula Abdul, man, nice. That's a nice couple gigs for a fellow. Thank you. I'm not talking about music or nothing like that. No, no, all about me. Well, Paula's thing was produced by Tim Miner. He was an incredible uh, 
I don't even what you call him, guy, Christian R and B singer and producer. So there's just a couple of tracks we did at uh, this at the Sound Lab in Dallas. But Olivia's thing, yeah, I I did my first gig with her in 2000. It was with an Australian band. She was coming over to the states to do some shows. She had retired because she had breast cancer in the early 90s, and just just kind of decided to stay home and and take care of her daughter. And but I, you know, late 90s, she did a couple of shows in Australia and uh, decided to to do some gigs in the States and her management is uh, Fitzgerald Hartley and having to be the management of Toto for their whole career, their whole career. And so I'd been working a lot with Simon Phillips, who was the guy that came in after Jeff uh, Piquero passed away. And so they just put the feelers out in management. Hey, we need a guitar player. There, there was the John Farnham band coming over to back her, but one of the guitar players couldn't make it. So just, just by recommendation from Simon, I got the gig, went out and it went great where we did like a, a two-month run starting in Vegas back in 2000. But they said, well, this guy's got his act together. Let's, we can put him in charge of a U.S.-based group, make you the, the music director. And you know, little did I know it'd be turned into the 15 years of a bigger part of my income. And, and, uh, we did. But it was, the, it was an amazing thing to be a part of because, A, you can't help but love her. She's just, you know, everybody would ask, you know, what's she really like? You know, well, it gets better than you think because not only is it this really sweet, beautiful soul, but she's highly intelligent, knows every freaking tune ever written and wants to hang. You know, she's just a really funny, witty, she's Australian, you know, it's, which it just, if you know any Australians, you know what I'm talking about. They're just the, they're just the coolest freaking people. And so we got on so great. And the band that we had formed around her, you know, felt about her like I did. I just, I love them. I respect the music and respect her and love her. So it was, it was a really nice family. So, and it would only be like, you know, three weeks here and there sprinkled around the year. So I could do that and also do still my, my own stuff. And I was still touring with Simon uh, in his, you know, when you have time away from Toto or whatever. So it was a nice balance of, of stuff. And I would get offers from having come solidly from, you know, a band called Danger Danger, which is very much 80s Bon Jovi kind of MTV rock. You know, I would get offers from bands maybe of that era or even, even higher known bands. I was like, eh, do I want to go be with those guys or do I want to hang with Olivia and play this music that I love? <laughs> no question. You know, there wasn't much of a, it wasn't much of a thing. You know, there, there, there could have been some different career directions I could have taken or whatever, but at the end of the day, especially after my, my son was born uh, exactly 18 years ago. And at that time I was like, well, if I'm going to leave home, man, it better be a good reason. It must be something I really love with people that I love because the, when you're younger, you know, my, my, certainly in my case, you just kind of say yes to everything because I just, I just want to work. I want to get out there and play. Then at a certain point, you know, fortunately I had Alex when I was, uh, we had Alex when I was uh, 40. So there had been enough of all that stuff and now I can be a little choosier and be home, be, be, not be the dad that was gone the whole time. So I'll never regret those decisions being, being home from my son. Is Alex a name? Is Alex a namesake? Uh, yes, for um, not Alex Lyson, but uh, no, uh, Al- Alec was my uh, wife's grandfather. So kind of named uh, in his in his his middle name's Julian, and that one's a bit more obvious for for uh, for Mister Lennon. Um, yeah, so he would have been Alexandra, but boy, he's Alex. <laughs> he's a Alexander. And he just started playing guitar. He got a little late start, but he started playing at the age of sixteen. The poor kid, you know, the, his whole life they so you playing guitar yet, you know. But he just never the bug never bit until one day I started hearing you Pantera and Metallica coming out of his bedroom. I went, ah, got some chops developing. Very much so. In he, Metallica is his main, you know, musical uh, genre that he's into. The real early stuff, which tends to be really aggressive, you know, really, you know, all down picked. And he kills it. His time is great, and he's got a really good sound going. He's getting a bit into lead guitar, and so I show him some stuff, but I found him a really great rock teacher that is at the Guitar Sanctuary, a great shop nearby me. And uh, But of course, like all kids, he's getting so much off of YouTube. Uh, but it's it, what the beautiful thing is that I never, I didn't have to like you push him in any direction. I would always have a guitar, and I'd say, hey, buddy, if you ever want to, you know, if you ever want to learn, I, I'm, I'm, you're, in a good, you're in a good house. I can help you. But uh, it was, it was, you know, he had to find it. And boy, once the light, once the light bulb was on, I just, I, I hear him in there all the time. And I'm not going to tell him to turn down either. Go ahead, buddy. <laughs> have, have fun. He's playing along with the records. And, and he says to me a few, he says to me a few weeks ago, he says, dad, isn't it cool? We have the same hobby. 
<laughs> and I, well, I love that because if, if you just if you just are hanging, yeah, this is what this is just what I do for fun. He knows he knows. Well, we 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 pay the bills. We have a roof, you know. And uh, but I love that he observed it like that, and it's true because now we can kind of geek out on guitar stuff. And, and he's lucky to have a parent or parents like you, where you don't say turn it down. Even while I was taking piano lessons, my parents didn't care that they were in the next room next to the kitchen. They never once said. Can you not play right and now? It's an incredible. And there was parents like that along the way, like that first band I was in that I mentioned when I was 13. We played in in in, in the Virginia Gore's basement for years, very loudly. And, you know, what an amazing, <laughs> empathetic group of parents it would take to to not discourage, but encourage that. And that was the same with my mother at, my mother at home. You know, here I was, you know, cranking Russian Kiss, and I had a collection of beer cans, which was a popular hobby for kids back then, you know. And some adults. I wasn't drinking it. I just loved the the art and the and kiss pictures on all four walls. And mom never, you know, she just I guess had a basic trust and uh, she did the best she could. You know, give me a a sense of uh, right and wrong or whatever. And I'm, I'm I survived somehow. I'm still here. Pretty good. Watch for the two new Rush beer labels that I just finished doing. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I just I, I seem to think I saw some commercial that they were doing, and, and Alex was was pretty toasty. It's pretty glib humor, but their one Belgian Belgian ale is called Moving Pictures. Um, <laughs> oh, but you know, I'll take that all day, any day. Thank you for that. Moving <laughs> Try the tongue sandwich. I think it speaks hey, for itself. But you know, it takes you back. Yeah. Um, I've got a picture of beer on a skateboard just growing down the street. It's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Fucking great. When you were going through your career, artwork as a buyer, as a, as a young purchaser of albums and so on, were you were you motivated by the cover? Or did you wait for the music to touch you and then you kind of didn't care what the cover was? Well, then I would have bought every Charlie record, wouldn't I? <laughs> and I'm a huge record bin flipper. I mean, I'm, you know, oh, from, you know, Salvation Armies and Goodwills and then, of course, Karma Records, I mentioned. Um, artwork is, is, was certainly very huge, but I don't know that it was ever the reason specifically. It, it was such just a wonderful, when you had the right artwork with the right music, because we didn't have all the other distractions. We were just, just get totally inside that. I remember Sergeant Pepper as a kid, because I was only, I was four and five, you know, when it came out. But I remember, I've, it's one of my early memories, the vivid, the smell of it, the, the red, the red on the back cover, right? That, 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 that red sound that looked like the timbre sound that was on so many of the, like the Indian thing. If, if, if you go forward to, I did a, I, did my own humble version of the Sergeant Pepper record with my power trio. And when it came time to do the artwork, of course, it's like, oh, you know, let's redo that. It, What's that called? It's called the Andy Timmons band plays Sergeant Pepper, creative title. So we, yeah, we did a, um, a version with no overdubs. It's one guitar, bass and drums, and I'm replicating the best I can in a linear fashion, all the parts that I hear in my head when I'm hearing that record. You know what I mean? If it's the, if it's the chicken, if it's the vocal, it's whatever it is. I'm incorporating that into a like a just coming up. It's almost like it was almost a jazz mentality chord melody version of you know the other days like a. the ending 
one of my favorite songs. I actually was listen. I was listening to it t- this morning. Ironically, you're kidding. That was that was only the that was the only Beatle tune for me. And maybe you can because you were listening to it. It was one of the more emotional Beatle tunes. Oh, ever. oh yeah. Lyrical content. It's this very sad, poignant, you know, child leaving home. The parents, you know, but it's it's and it dawned on me later that it's Paul's infatuation with Brian Wilson that kind of brought some of that out because Brian, to me, is the king of from in my room to you know uh, the sunset, warmth night, of the sun, warmth of the sun. You know, so many great, so many of his great ballads, but it's that falsetto that that Paul gets to. It's totally Brian, and there's something he really tapped into a deeper emotion that you're used to getting from McCartney. God only knows yeah. was like a like oh. like a hymn. It was just gorgeous. <laughs> it's just one of the um Do you Paul, have a version of you playing that song in, in your band too? God only knows by any chance. You know, we haven't played it live. I did a couple of ver- I did a version of it when I was when the when the pandemic hit. I started doing um, live stream gigs on a platform called Stage It, where you know I've got tracks from all my records without the main guitar, so it was pretty easy for me to do shows like that because I'd done guitar clinics for so many years. It was a pretty similar process. I'd just be here in my studio, and and so you know as I started to go through all my stuff, I was like, well, I need to come up with other stuff. So sometimes I'd just grab an acoustic and sing and play Beatles stuff or whatever '60s. Um, but I would also just start coming up with other covers. And I did a version of that, acapella, but then I actually then took the backing track from that that great stereo remix uh, that that they did in the in the early 2000s, or maybe late 90s, and then used a bit of their track and played a bit at the end. But it, it does, it works really great, um, even just as a solo piece. I'm not going to bear, I haven't practiced it in a while, but as you can tell, it's got a... Yeah, well, it, it, coming to a record near you at some point. How about how about Waterloo Sunset by the Kinks? Oh my God! About yeah, that I, one? I, would, I would do. I would do the, all the '60s Kinks. I, I good Lord. Uh, mm. I mean, just yeah, Ray Davies is just one of the greatest writers in the history of all the evers. I remember sitting down to to play God Only Knows on the piano about five years ago because I never really bothered to really learn it. I just loved listening to it. And what an interestingly, deceivingly simple chord structure that song is made of. Even more, even more complex than anything really the Beatles have done when you think about it, you know, it, it's pretty amazing. Wouldn't he the first guy to start a song with a with a chord over the five? Yeah, he, he was doing a lot of triad over bass note a lot of different inversions that nobody had really done but then paul certainly started doing oh he know. grabbed right onto it yeah. yeah he absolutely unabashedly and he's always called god only knows his his favorite tune i've had the privilege of sharing a stage we opened for the beach boys in the band i was in and brian was just coming up from his his haze after the doctor after the doctor was dismissed Denny was still with them too. So, wow, yeah. that's incredible, man. Yeah, it was. It was a great. It was a great experience just being on that stage with them. And oh my God! Yes, just to be in the presence of. Yeah, you know, we also had the privilege on this podcast to speak with Van Dyke Parks, which was a trip. Oh, yeah, oh my God. Yeah. I'm not to self-promote ourselves here, but you should listen to that episode. I will. It's... No, I will definitely because the Smile record before they did the whole revamp and release became just this really big thing for me once did you have the bootleg album like i did 30 years ago I, all of it every 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 piece of tape that you know there was you know because clearly it wasn't all of it but there had been a lot that had kind of leaked out over the years so there was this wonderful book by dominic priori that like had all the press from back in the day and all the stories you know talking about what was to be what's coming you know and all this press and the buildup and just once you get into brian's story and the dynamic with the band and um it just it was just clear this was like this grace it was like the atlantis of music it was this this missing thing that just didn't come to fruition so fast forward to when you know blurbs start coming out because brian had come back he had the imagination record he started touring again he had the wonderful darian chanaja and the the wonderments guys i did a show with him about that time 
for Tim White, it was a benefit. And he was actually on stage at the end. I think he was actually singing, so I can say that I actually played drums while Brian Wilson. Roger Waters was singing, who was who was scared to death. Uh, James Taylor, Sting, uh, Henley, I don't know, Sheryl Crow, a bunch of people. So, some but, notables. But but Brian was there. That was the notable for me. Well, so my quick story about about Smile and, and when that was coming to fruition, I've been hearing about it, and they, they were going to debut smile at this uh nec it's in it's in in the, in the uk some maybe it's london but a famous venue in in the uk and they were going to debut smile they'd, they'd gotten van dyke parks back on i was hearing all this stuff about oh my god this is happening right so this factors in with my time with olivia we were staying at the infamous sportsman's lodge in uh studio city it's a, just a like a hotel that's been there since the 70s, you know, just probably still has the same shag carpet, but every band tended to stay there, right? So we had a day off, and uh, as as when you're traveling, the, one of the biggest things you got to worry about is laundry, you know? Uh, so they, they had a coin-op laundry at this little sportsman's lodge, right? I'm in there doing laundry, and I meet this young woman that has an Australian accent, and we're chatting, and we're going, and you know, she, I find out she's from Australia. Oh, wow, you know, well, I'm... I'm I'm here with Olivia Newton-John. Oh my God, I love Olivia. Well, I'm so. Well, what are you doing here? Well, my my boyfriend is the the lighting director, uh, or or for the for or maybe the drum tech, either the lighting director or the drum tech. But it, for for Brian Wilson, I'm like, immediately I went ding. I'm like, oh really? And 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 she goes, yeah, you know, they're rehearsing at at uh, I think it might have been Mates. Yeah, um, I'm sure it'd be cool. But let me ask my boyfriend if you could go to the rehearsal. So. She, you know, we exchange numbers and she says, yeah, yeah, he, they're, they're cool with you going. So it was, it was for the next day. They were going to start at 1030. I had to be on a tour bus going to Las Vegas at two o'clock, but the hotel, the hotel rented, had, they had their own car rental kiosk, rented a car, drove, got there at 1030. And it's literally Brian, the whole band, David Leaf, who's a very famous friend of Brian's. It's also his documentarian that. He did a documentary of the Smile record. They were about to do their very first complete run through of Smile. And I'm there. I'm like, this is what the universe did to, for me at that moment is incredible. So then they were going to do a little vocal rehearsal. There was a film crew there, a vocal rehearsal in another room. So out walks Brian, David Foscat, and the other singers. And now I'd met Brian a couple of times before this, I should point out. And if you're familiar with Brian, and you know, he had a very lopsided smile, just kind of. Like he might have had a stroke or he had some kind of palsy. So they're, 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 I'm standing in the foyer as they're coming back through to go to the main rehearsal room. And the, the tech who'd gotten me in was with Brian. And I said, Brian, would you, would you mind taking a quick picture? He goes, yeah, sure, of course. And I had, it was a disposable Kodak camera. I handed it to my, to my now friend, the, the tech. And, and as he's taking our picture together, he goes, smile, Brian. And Brian smiles. And there it was, this, this big, natural, full smile. Because all these years, I'd always thought that that smile record not coming out was really his downfall. Not not just the acid, but just his masterwork was never completed. He came. He just he just had to withdraw from it, and he was he had very dark memories of it. There was the fire that he thought he'd created, exactly. And so, but by the band, slowly, like, well, if you if we did. If we did this, you know, if we did workshop, if we did, uh, you know, wonderful, how, what did you have in mind for the next section or Plymouth Rock? And so they gradually got him to talk about it. And then, you know, they started doing a couple songs and then, hey, let's, there's, there was a vocal section there that Darian, he goes, but I can't remember it. Let's call Van Dyke, which is, so he must've told you all the same stuff. And then that's, so they bring it to fruition, but I got to be there for this this run through i just i could not believe it you know they, they, they of course like well, you you can't tell anybody what you're about to hear because nobody knew the order how they were going to put it together and what they did as a band to not only replicate what had been done on those original tracks but then fill in fill in the, the blanks yeah i saw it live when it when they released the live performance of course i guess we all saw that but Oh, it's just, it, it truly is magical. And what a, what a thing for Brian to finally get that. I, I, I can't imagine what that must've done for his soul, but in that photograph, because I'd had a couple of the pictures where he was, you know, not, not quite the same face, you know, it was like, it had, it really seemed like a lighter person in, in a way. It, it should be said that you go on record for being one of two people who actually 
brought your instrument to the to the interview. Van Dyke was the other one. Well, a couple of other guys oh have. Oh my God, I can't imagine hanging with him. With you need to check him out and listen to what he did at the very end. It's really, really beautiful. I will go later today and check out your podcast with Van Dyke. I would love to make a request. I'd love to hear PWF. I could well without the. I don't have the track available. I it, I sound much better with the band on that one. But I, I can play the riff again. But yeah, without the. There was a tune that I wrote after meeting Billy Cox and his wife, Brenda. Billy was the bassist, of course, in the Band of Gypsies. And I met, I met them at one of those Experience Hendrix tours. They were touring around doing Jimmy's music, and Billy would play some tunes during the night. So I get to the venue, and and Billy Cox is at the merch, just at the merch table, hanging out, signing some autographs and meeting people. So I went to hang with him, and his wife, Brenda, was there. And as we got to be very friendly, I, I found out they'd been married for 50 years. And I went, oh my God. So it, I'm married 25 now, and so... Anytime I meet a, a, a successful couple, I always ask them, well, of course, you know, what's what, knowing that there's no real answer, but what's the secret? You know, what, what's, give me, give me the goods here. And she just looks at me and she says, grace. And, uh, I knew exactly what she meant without having to say any more than that. So I went home that night and wrote this decidedly Hendrixy tune called grace. Um, so I'll play a bit of it for you. It's a... That's beautiful, man. That's fantastic. That's fabulous, man. There's a bit of Beach Boys in that. And yeah? Beatles, man. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh-huh. And then I okay. Full disclosure, also, God, God rest in peace, uh, Gary Brooker. Because when I get to oh, this, man. Like, yeah. hello, you know, because yeah. what have we got here? I never saw as many call-outs on what a great, not just a great singer he was, but what a great human he was from Ian Pace and Brian May. I got to see, I only saw Gary with Ringo. I saw Procol once. They were great. I did too, Fantastic. yeah. 91. I saw him, well, we were playing the Hollywood Bowl with Mellencamp the next day and it was my night off. No lights, no fancy lights or anything, just pure white light and just hit. I mean, this uh, was it. Oh, not a better, not a better corporate. Not, never better. Now you're killing me. cinematic yeah melodies yeah, it's one of my favorite songs of all time just so freaking great man. i can't believe you know all those tunes man to well, play them, to play them by yourself that, I, I honestly i just yeah no it just it's not better yeah paul mccartney once said it and i think it makes so much sense he said sometimes the best ballads that you can write are a hymn and evidenced by whiter shade of pale and salty salty dog and let it be and you know, those are all hymns. I mean, it's very Anglo, Anglo card 
except for some of the diminished, which gets a lot more um, interesting. But yeah, man, it's it's gorgeous. What is the chord that that song starts on? It's a Lydian. It says C sharp or D, D, uh, yeah, C sharp uh, major seven sharp eleven. We're actually just really just flat five. There's no there's no flat five. Seven. Yeah. All hands on deck. Da, 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 da. I heard the captain cry. Explore the ship. Place the cook. Let no one leave alive. Fuck, that's heavy, man. Yeah, man. It was the same guy that did a lot of the lyrics, right? Most of Keith the Reed. Keith Reed. That's lyrics. right. That's right. Yeah. Ay, yeah, yeah. Just but the sound of that organ. The sound of the organ. I know that Gary was the pianist, but the organ. On, Matthew uh, Fisher. Just a, oh, you know, Matthew Fisher sued yeah. Gary. Yeah, I heard about that. About 15 years ago. And you, got didn't get, you didn't get writing 40 credit. Yeah, he got 40% of the, of the composing credit. Yeah, I don't know what percentage to put on it, but it's nothing. It's, it's very important. It's I mean, a huge part. I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, me, it's a huge lick. Yeah, I'm not big. The lyrics are what they are. They're flowery 60s, and it's okay. And, and Gary's. But what's cool about the lyrics, though, is you're never sure what's going on, <laughs> yeah. and and you're still questioning all these years later, you know, as opposed to some of the flower power stuff right. that came out. The, to me, it, it's a, no, it's it's it stands. It's, it stands sonically, up. Sonically, it's old ten thousand hard copies, so they were doing something right. When I was thirteen, living in England, uh, my crazy Scottish music teacher was kind enough to give me a copy of the key to the pipe organ in the chapel at, oh at, the, at the boys' school. And <laughs> you you don't have to wonder what I played every day for about Oh, dear. I can't imagine the sound of that. Full volume, this, man. Was, in that room. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's incredible. At 13? Yeah. That's life-changing, man. It was, man. It was. It, wow. So 13, what, so how, when were you born, Hugh? So what year was that? Uh, none of your business. No. Um, hey! <laughs> well, what do you, wait till you get to be my age, then you'll know. Yeah, 1952. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I'm going to try to stump the band here. What other? <laughs> it won't take long. <laughs> no, I'm just well, I can't believe Salty Dog, man. Yay. Well, yeah, when Gary passed, I had, I'd kind of, I had messed with a, an arrangement of that probably 10 years ago. I was on tour somewhere and I was just heavy into that, that record and that song. So the drumming on that record's fantastic too. BJ I love, Wilson. Uh, yeah, the, the drummer's name again. B.J. Wilson. Yeah, he just, and he's the same guy. On, he's same guy on on Wider Shade of Pale, right? No, I was actually a session drummer that just went in and played that song twice and oh, left that no. day. He got okay. paid twenty five bucks, and he was on his way. Do you remember? They who didn't that even was? have a drummer yet on the first record. Okay, well, that explains why it wasn't on the first record. I mean, that was just a single, right? That wasn't on that. Yeah, it was just a single. Two takes. By, oh my God! Oh God! Uh, uh, it's the same. No. Oh, if you heard it enough, you should be able to play, right? What, what key are we in? What do you think, Hugh? What key are we in? Okay. Uh, what song is it? The Bat Bat Hamburg, same era. Might have been. Oh, the, Hamburg. Hamburg. By oh the, yeah. yeah. The multilingual. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. probably in C. Yeah. Oh, is it in D? That's a great one too. Mm. I got there too soon. You better take off your That's a great part. I'm playing in C. This sounds right to me. Wow. Well, that's that'll be the next one I, I there you go. work on. That's a beautiful one. Gary Brooker's greatest hits and Procol. Fuck, man. That's uh, yeah. That's, that's this, good this shit, mood. Man. And the, the the other one, I repent wall purchase. I always wanted to do a version of that. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, just yeah. that instrumental. Yeah. Just one of those descending minor things. That, anyway, it'd be a good jam. It's a great one. Conquistador. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. In the right key. Stunning. 
stump. All yeah. right. Dang it. <laughs> okay, so played with a true story orchestra, by the way. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. The Edmonton's uh, Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. Wow. The live record. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, what I just done. Um, okay. Where was I going with that? I don't know. I'm easily distracted here with all these great tunes, man. What the heck? Uh, fantastic. You got to do a Purple Harem album. That would yeah, be, you know, that would make my brother Mark very happy. Mark is my eldest brother. I mentioned that he's the philosophy professor down in Tucson at the Arizona State University. But he is probably the biggest Proko Harem fan I've ever met. And just well, here would be the other one. All right, okay. Well, then we'll get you. I mean, I've got the Proko Harem biography. How many people have that? I mean, really? I've got all the I got all Gary Brooker solo records. So all right, well, this is. This I is... even bought them on CD the first time I got a chance to go to Europe. I saw. I got. I found all those. Yeah, I was gonna say not 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 released over here. Maybe or we're not no, as easily. No, they weren't at all. I mean, I, you discovered. can get them on Apple Music now, but this was thirty. This was twenty five years. It was ago. more fun. I you know I, I was I, digging it, it man. It it's was nice like, having everything in your back pocket. But I love finding the one shop in Stockholm that had the specific bootleg of you know. Loved it. Yeah, that was oh, that yeah. was a little more exciting. You had to really seek it out. Yeah, you had to you had to dig deep. Yeah, and now they're all sitting in the attic, and I've got it on my phone. I guess. All right. It doesn't matter. Progress or something. I don't know. Or not. <laughs> yeah. No, I hear you guys. Man. Well, shoot. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. It was awesome. Thank you, Andy. Yeah. No, I enjoyed uh, chatting with all of you. What a, what a, a nice collection of folks. It's yeah. a pleasure for you.